I pray that you would encourage every person today to realize that they are so much more than they remember. And that their Father sees them as so much more than they ever dreamed they could be. So I just pray that you would help us to connect with you, to encounter you, to, to learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. Or not. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to tell you what to do because I know that works out poorly for me. Because I have eight sons. I told them plenty to do. And that did not work out well for me. No, I'm just kidding. It worked out fine. Well, how was Thanksgiving? Wonderful. Good. Anyone, anyone have a family feud? Anyone have a no major breakouts? Anyone discuss politics? Any politics discussions? <clears throat> you're like, Michael, you're trying to start trouble. Maybe. Maybe. So uh, this is a one in a row series. That means there's one, okay? Amen. I'm pretty good at one in a row. So uh, next week we start a series on fear. It's called Fear Not. And uh, we'll be looking at the Christmas story with a little bit of a twist, which is what we do. We twist things up. You say, Michael, that sounds twisted. That's what we're going for. So uh, now you know. But today we want to talk about identity. Last week in our small group, um, I, was, uh, we were t- I was talking about identity with one of our group members, and um, I don't know if they might be ashamed to be in the group, so I won't say their name, but um, we were talking about identity, and uh, it, it, it just I had some new thoughts on identity I hadn't had in a while uh, that started several years ago when I began uh, planning churches in Colorado. I served as a missionary for uh, the North American Mission Board uh, in conjunction with them anyway. Um, I had a young man that I was mentoring in Missouri, and he came out for a while to reconnect uh, with us, and uh, I was ministering to him, and he was someone I love. He was like my ninth son, and so uh, he was very, well, he'd been more like my fifth or sixth son, but somewhere in there, you know, and so, but um, <clears throat> he, was, he was at a, a juncture in his life, because he's a very talented young man, very charismatic young man, just had a lot of energy, and just so, he was at a juncture of his life where he just had... So many opportunities, just so many opportunities. And he was telling me about them, and he listed them off for me, all these opportunities. And I remember the Lord gave me a word for him at the time, and I was sitting across the table from him, and I, I, said, I said to him, Drew, man, I love you, but with all of these opportunities, you're not going to be able to do anything. Too much overwhelms you, and you do nothing. And... Um, it was a it was a epiphany for him. It was an epiphany for me. I'd never thought of things in that those terms before, but I, I began to realize over the years, and this was part of our conversation the other night. Is is for for decades now we've told our children you can be anything you want to be, and I'm beginning to realize anything is too big. You've got to start somewhere. You know what I mean. I mean, and even though you can be anything you want to be, I don't know, there are limits. I can't see Shaq, a very talented and assertive individual, as a ballerina. I'm not seeing how that would work. There are limits on anything, I suppose. But my point is, is when the opportunities are overwhelming, you likely will do nothing. You'll just be overwhelmed. And so it's the guide of mentors and parents to help their children begin to hone those things out and begin to 
to step into paths that will give them a good start. They may not stay in those paths, but they, it'll at least give them a launching pad, a place to, to take off from. Well, today, we've just finished a series last week that was eight messages long called Starting Point. And we, we tried to take, to strip away all the distractions from the Christian faith, all the things that they're not, it's not that they're not important, it's just they're not the primary issue. And we tried to strip that away and take everyone back to a decision about Jesus. Is he who he says he is? So today's message is the next step or the next thought processes from that point. If you have decided that Jesus is who he says he is, then what? What does that change and how does that change? And the primary thing I want to talk about today is that it changes who you are. It changes your identity. By an understanding of who Jesus is, you come to a new understanding of who you are. Mark Twain says, um, he's famous for saying, a very important quote that I can't find in my notes right now. There it is. The two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. So stepping from a place where you are strapped by your mistakes, your brokenness, and your past, and into a relationship with God that sets you free of those things changes everything about you. Changes your story, changes your background, changes your history, changes your future. So today I want to talk about who you are in Jesus Christ. And I want, to, I want to get rid of that identity crisis that Christians are suffering under today. You're not, you're not defined by, I'm sorry, <laughs> I have a timer that sounds just like that. I thought it was time to get up. I'm like, <sighs> please don't wake them up. I'm speaking in their sleep, man. Anyway, it's subliminal. All right. <clears throat> but, uh, sorry, I distracted myself. It was not your fault. I, I, I totally own that one. So, um, we, we tend to look at ourselves from identities in, our, in the world in which we live. I don't know if it's like this in every culture, but in America, in, in the Western culture, we tend to look at ourselves according to what we do. So if, you, if, if you've learned and studied engineering and you work in the engineering field, we call you an engineer. We say you are an engineer. We, we identify you as an engineer. It's, it's, it's who you are. But being an engineer is not who you are. You, you drive a truck, we would call you a truck driver. You fix pipes, we call you a plumber. You, you, you bore people to sleep with messages, we call you a preacher. <laughs> but we're not human doings. We're not defined by what we do. I'm not saying our behavior isn't important. I'm just saying it doesn't define us. What you've done doesn't define you. Your worst mistakes don't define you. What should define you now that you have stepped, for those of you who've made that choice, if you've decided who Jesus is and now you've stepped into his identity, what should define you now is what God says about you. So today is a six-point message, which makes, you're like, what does that mean? It's going to, it means we're going to be here well. No, I'm going to try and keep it short. This is a high-level message, okay? This is not meant to be the, the beginning and the end. This is an entire series and one message is what it is, okay? But I want to look at six things that are true about you because you've come to a point that you turn from your sins and you turn to Jesus and you declared that he is exactly who he says he is, the Son of God. He rose from the dead, and his word is therefore valid because of the actions that back that up. So let's get started. The Bible says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. <clears throat> in those days, you were living apart from Christ, 
This is before you made that decision about Jesus. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. You weren't a Jew. And you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. That's Paul's definition of what it is to live without Jesus as the Lord of your life. To live without that that defining moment that you've come to terms with who Jesus is. But then there's verse 13, he says, but, but now, something changed. But now you've been united with Christ Jesus, with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to God, to Him, through the blood of Christ. So you and I need to understand, God is not at a distance to you anymore. You've been brought close. This is what Paul's trying to teach you. You're not out there wondering where God is. You shouldn't be out there thinking He hates you or He's mad at you. You should be understanding a simple truth, a simple fact even, that God has brought you near, close to Him, because of what Jesus Christ has done. So that begins to answer some questions or raise some questions. Uh, One of those is, who am I to God? What does God think about me? Isn't that, have you ever, you ever even, you ever even phrased it that way to yourself? What does God think? What does God think about me? This is one of my favorite verses. This was the one that God gave me at about 13 uh, that changed, that changed the trajectory of my life in several ways. God said to a young, young man, mid, early, you know, probably late teens, early 20s, Jeremiah, He said, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. I love Jeremiah's, this is Jeremiah's calling, and I love it. It's incredibly personal. It's it's incredibly up close and in your face. If you knew, if you had read the book of Jeremiah and saw what God was calling him to do, you'd understand why this very personal invitation was so important. Jeremiah was going to have to do some very difficult things throughout his life. But God began that journey with those statements. I know you. I made you. I define you. I give you your purpose. Amazing. Another one's King David. King David took the nation of Israel from their own dark ages, the the book of Judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And dragged them into the light and made them a major political uh, geopolitical power. And David writes this of God. He says of God, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God. They cannot be numbered. So, these are beautiful I, revelations, I guess, of what God thinks about Jeremiah and what God thought about David. And you may think, well, they're like the superheroes of the Bible. But I I want you to understand, these are not the exceptions. These are the examples of how God loves people. And here's why I think that. Romans 8, 29, Paul's hand writes, God knew his people in advance. He chose them to become like His Son so that His Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. One day, 
every child of God, when they get home, I believe a, a realization is going to dawn. And I think it's what's going to make that first day at home, whatever that is, I think it's what's going to make it so incredible. When we realize that God set His heart on us before the foundations of the world and pursued us right up until He shoved us in the front door of heaven. Okay? I really believe that's how God sees you. So when I read texts to Jeremiah and David, I know that they also apply to me. And that they are also helpful to how God sees and understands me. So I want you to understand that as we go through today. And so six truths I want to give you. High level truths, I hope that they will make you want to explore them more. I'm giving you some knowledge today. Knowledge is nice. I don't agree with the existential thought that knowledge is power. I think knowledge puffs up. Proud, arrogant, and do dumb things. But hey, that's just my thought. You can be wrong if you disagree. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what I mean at all. What we need is we need knowledge, we need revelation. So, what I'm giving you today is knowledge. And you have to start thinking about it. You have to step out into it. You have to ask God to reveal it to you. And as he does, you'll step into your true identity. If you just take this, okay, that was a, that was a sermon, some of the jokes were okay, and I'm going to go to lunch, it won't help you, it won't set you free from your past, and it won't level you up into what God has for you. Yep. Knowledge is one thing, but what I want you to have is revelation, and I can't give that to you. Does that make sense? You have to press into it. You have to steward the things that are given to you. You have to take care of them. So I'm giving you something today. Six points. The first thing I need you to know, you need to understand, is that you are in Christ. Every believer is in Christ. I am in Christ. So I'd like to all say that together. I know we don't do this kind of stuff a lot, but I want to make it as awkward as possible so it's memorable as possible. <laughs> so all together on the count of three, we're going to say, I am in Christ. One, two, three. I am in Christ. Good job. Give yourself way to go, man. I'm telling you what. I'm in Christ. What do you mean, Michael? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul tells us, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. The second that I release my own personal sovereignty in my life, the day I stop being God to me, and I enthrone Jesus as Lord because I believe that he is exactly who he says he is, the Son of God who rose from the dead. Else we would not be meeting here today. When I believe that, then there's a whole lot of things that God has had stored up waiting for me to enter into. And this is first, primary, and why all of them exist. He places me in Christ. Everything I have has to do with those two words, in Christ. All the blessings, all the strength, all the power, all the endurance, all the patience, all the love, everything comes because of where God has placed me. He has placed me in Jesus Christ. And he looks at me in that way. How does that work, or how that works is, is that God gives, he attributes things from Jesus onto me, and attributes things from me onto Jesus. So when I was a teenager, uh, you know, a million years ago, uh, I was riding my Bronco 
like the actual dinosaur, brontosaurus around town. Um, no, I was fr- playing baseball next to my house with my friend. We were probably 13 or 14. I don't know. It was, it was long ago that my arm could still throw a baseball without sending me the chiropractor. So, <clears throat> a day or two ago. Right, Dr. Floyd? <laughs> anyway, so, um, so I'm out there. We're playing baseball and uh, throwing the ball. And, of course, teenage boys, they're daredevils, you know, and we're trying to throw it. As, we're trying to hit the moon with a baseball and, and falling short. But there was one little miscalculation, just a small miscalculation I made, and that was the location of my neighbor's daughter's car. My neighbor's older teenage daughter's car. Now, I'm not saying she was dramatic, <laughs> but there was some drama that was about to happen, okay? So I, uh, I, I threw the baseball as hard and as high as I could go, and my friend, who was my friend, friends help friends out, right? He missed the ball. He was supposed to catch the ball. And he saw where it was going. And he was out. <laughs> he was like, oh, man, that's bad for you. <laughs> that's my, my friend's role. I shattered. It was, a, it was some old Volkswagen, like a Volkswagen Golf, 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 something like that. It was, it was small enough I could pick it up and put it in my back pocket. It was a pretty small car. You, the windshield was shattered. I mean... It just splintered in every way possible. I mean, it was just, you couldn't see through it anymore. And I'm like, oh no, what am I going to do? I don't want to tell dad, but we live here. (laughs) I mean, if we were playing a few streets over, that person would have never known what happened to their windshield. So I go and I tell my dad. Actually, first I knocked on the door, she came out. Drama, drama. Let's not talk about that part. It was was like, come on, it's just a windshield. But I'm glad it was yours and not mine. And uh, I went and got my dad. My dad came out. You know, it was at that funny stage of my life between childhood and adulthood where your parents are trying to transition you from a child who's in trouble to a young adult who's taking responsibility for your actions. And my dad, you know, he came out, he saw what, was, he saw what happened, he shook his head. My dad has a way of shaking his head that that's all he has to do. He has to say nothing. He's just like, it's just like that. I, get, I can do it for my boys, too. Say, We're not saying anything here. And he, and he, he told me it was okay. And we, we, he got her dad's number and information, and my dad paid for the windshield. I was 13. I was mowing lawns, but I didn't have that kind of money. I made a mistake. It was an innocent mistake, but it was a mistake. And my dad paid. That's how I'm in Christ. I've made a lot of mistakes. But the Father, through Jesus, paid for all of them. Everything I've ever done wrong is on Jesus. Everything I'll ever do wrong is on Jesus. And everything he has ever done right is on me. Do you understand that? That's what it means to be in Christ. When God looks at me, he doesn't see my mess. He doesn't see my failures. He doesn't see my losses. He doesn't see my broken past. He sees the victory of his son, Jesus. 
That's what this means. It's a substitutionary doctrine. You're like, what does that mean? You know what? It just means that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus instead of you. He sees everything victorious and none of your failings. Your past has been taken care of by what Jesus has done. This is one of the many things it means to be in Christ. So when you think about this, This is the core, this is the beginning to me of your faith. This idea of what does it mean to be in Christ? And what is there to know about Christ? And then what was Christ like? What is Jesus like? What does all this mean? The Bible says in Colossians 2.7, this is one of my favorite verses, and I think it's really basic and foundational to how to grow in your faith. Paul writes, let your roots go down into Jesus talking about Jesus from an earlier text. Let your lives be built on Jesus, and then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Every, we need to, if we're going to grow in this Jesus who we've decided that He is exactly who He says He is, we need to learn about Him. We need to learn about Him. I know the Bible can be an intimidating book, although there are textbooks in high school that are longer, it seems like, sometimes. I know it can be an intimidating book, but what I, I want to encourage you to do is spend a lot of time in the Gospels. Okay, I have a, a little confession to make. There are a lot of church faiths, and maybe you grew up in a faith that really said, well, you know, the New Testament doesn't start till Acts, so just worry about Acts on. That annoys me. I love Paul. But Paul is explaining what Jesus has done. Paul's applying the theology of Jesus. And so if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, and if you made this decision about following Jesus, then learn about Jesus. I read one chapter out of the Gospels every day. I read all four Gospels about three times a year. It's simple. It's not hard to do. Although Luke needed a few more chapters. I will admit that. And so uh, Mark needed a couple more too. But the point is simply this. And by the way, they didn't make those chapters. A monk in the fourth century did. Uh, never mind. So you're like, I don't care. Right, I know, me either. My point is simply this. If you learn about Jesus, you learn about the things that he accomplished for you and how those things are accredited to you. So I am in Christ. Paul put it this way in Galatians 2.20. He said, my old self was crucified with Christ It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus Christ is your deepest, truest, most powerful identity. So learn about him. It doesn't mean you lose yourself. It means you find yourself. It means you find a clearer definition of who you are and who you're meant to be. So I encourage you, read the Gospels every chance you get. Learn the stuff that Jesus said and did. It will confuse you. This is how I know if people are reading their Bible or not. If you're reading your Bible, you're going to get frustrated. You're going to have questions. Uh, You might get mad. That's how you know. People who don't read their Bibles, they just trust me. You're in a mess. Just kidding. A little bit. I'm in Christ. Second thing I want you to see, I'm justified. I know it's a big word, but I'm going to make it super simple for you in just a minute. But let's say it together. You ready? I am justified. Count of three. One, two, three. I am justified. I am justified. The Bible says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is 
So now, sorry, I memorized this in King James when I was a kid, so I always want to say it in King James, the translation. Uh, but so now, now, there's no condemnation, no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. One of the most infuriating stories in the Bible to me is the story of Barabbas. It's a story about the crucifixion, and Barabbas was um, a rebel. He incited violence. When Barabbas showed up in a town, people died. Uh, Incidentally to whatever he was doing. He was a murderer. He was just an ugly, awful criminal. And it's a frustrating story because when you read the story of Jesus' crucifixion and you meet Barabbas, you know what kind of guy he is. You also know the political forces that are in play. The forces of these religious, these dead religious leaders. They're not dead They should have died sooner. But anyway, they're not dead. (laughs) But they're influencing and moving things. And you have the Roman government that appears powerless in the situation, but they're just being neglectful in reality. And so you have this weird, twisted story where the criminal gets off scot-free. And the innocent person gets punished, condemned. And crucified. You read the story of Barabbas, and, and, and one side it's infuriating because you see all these things going on, but on the other, if you flip it over and look at it the other way, you realize, well, I'm Barabbas. I'm the guy who deserved what Jesus is going to go through, and Jesus went through. So Barabbas really kind of is an example of me looking like I got away with something, when in reality it wasn't that I got away with something, it was that Jesus Christ paid for everything. So the word justification, big fancy church word, but one of my pastors many years ago, and I'm sure he got it from somewhere else, and it's probably all over the place, simplified it. To be justified is to be just as if I'd never sinned, done anything wrong, failed, Just as if that had never happened. Because justification is a legal term. A lot of things you'll encounter in the Bible are legal in nature. Because we're dealing with things that work in courtrooms that are um, in other places rather than just on earth. And so understand that what this means is is that your legal problems, when 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 you make that decision, you move to Christ and you trust everything, it means your legal problems with God are over. Jesus Christ paid for all of those things. So, I'm in Christ. I'm justified. i got to go a little faster. Sorry, I'm having fun. I'm adopted. Some of you looked at me and go, I knew you were adopted. Well, you hadn't even met my folks yet. You don't know. (laughs) We had eight kids, so obviously there were lots of adoption jokes in the family. Our son Cody was called. They called him Wendy for a while. Because of FedEx. Yeah, Yeah, sorry. what happened was we were having kids faster than our, uh, than our family economy could afford vehicles. So we had a Suburban, which is a very big vehicle, but we had, with car seats, we had one extra child and we had seats. So Cody, got, he was the only one who would fit at the time and not be, didn't have to be in a car seat. So he sat in the cargo area. <laughs> it really hurt his psyche. He's still mad about it. <laughs> So his brothers told him he was adopted, and they found him somewhere. Wendy's. They found him at Wendy's. 
She knows the stuff that's, she'll fill me in later. <sighs> you know the great thing about being adopted? You don't get to kick, to pick, you don't get to kick them either. But you don't get to pick, you don't get to pick your biological kids. Your biological kids are your biological kids. Okay? They, they arrive in this world and you think they're beautiful. Your friends may not agree, but they will not say so, you know. I'm sorry, I love you all, but I've seen very few beautiful babies. Most of them look like they're not done yet. I'm just, <laughs> it's just me. I know your baby's different. I'm just saying, eight kids, I've seen a few. They could have used another couple months, but my wife was done. <laughs> sorry. Your biological kids, you are stuck with. But adopted children are picked. Chosen. And so God adopted you. But all who believed Jesus and accepted Jesus, He gave the right to become the children of God. You've been brought into something. You've been adopted into a family. Have you ever thought how, how it would be especially cruel if God were just to, to come along and give this glorious message of salvation that you can be forgiven of your sins and then you make that step that defining moment you step into Christ and then God would say okay good job I'm out that would be cruel wouldn't it have a good life I I did the hard part you figure it out from here that is not how God rolls assuming God rolls God doesn't just save people and then say okay have a nice life God saves people and then brings them into the family he adopts them into a household. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little older now. I have memories from the Bible Belt. I grew, that's where I grew up in church. And uh, I grew up saying things like, and I still do this, so if you don't understand it, you're about to. We called everybody brother or sister. Yep. Brother Steve. In fact, I, I refused to wear the title pastor for at least a decade. I insisted you call me brother. I even had it on my Bible. I just really loved the idea of the family of God. Love it. Um, there's an old song, so I'm going to expose you to some southern gospel sounds right now. Hang on. I'm about to speak a little banjo. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I rolled right up. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Join heirs with Jesus as we travel this side. For I'm part of the family, the family of God. Anybody remember that song? <clears throat> i got to do a verse for you. There's one verse in here you need to hear because it kind of understands. Because the whole brother-sister thing can sound a little cultish if you're outside the, the culture of church. And, and I get that. But here's, here's why it is. If, if I can remember the tune, you'll notice we say brother or sister around here. It's because we're a family and these are so near. When one has a heartache, we all share the tears and rejoice in each victory 
in this family so dear. Good words, huh? Good lyrics. It's a lot of fun. That's what I like about family. I love seeing God's church as family. We're going to talk a lot about God's church next year. But, the, you know, God's our Father. And, and Papa loves orphans. He calls himself many times throughout the Scriptures the Father of the fatherless. Isn't that crazy? And if you look at how Jesus behaved and how Paul behaved, what did Jesus do? He came to earth. He was baptized. The Holy Spirit fell on him. He did the whole wilderness thing. Came out of that wilderness in power. And then he gathered around him 12 losers. 12 failures. 12 guys who were hopeless. And he turned them into a family that would turn the world on its head. Later, you you meet Paul, and Paul was the same. He was cut from the same cloth. Throughout the book of Acts and in Paul's letters, he's always just embracing people into his ministry. And Timothy comes along, and Timothy is born with a, a, a Gentile father and a Jewish mother, which would make him pretty much outcast in the Jewish community. And, and Paul's trying, he's beginning many, many of his uh, churches out of Jewish communities, but he, he takes Timothy under his wing like a, a spiritual father to him. He just, this is God's way. It's a way of fathering. It's a way of father In a world that doesn't even know what a father is anymore, this is exactly how God works. He, he brings people into the household. So we are, we're all adopted. We're not lost boys. We're not cowboys. We're not on our own. This is part of who you are as a Jesus follower now. I'm in Christ. I'm justified as if I'd never sinned. And I'm part of a family. I've been adopted into it. The next thing I want you to see is that I'm secure. So let's say that together. Count three. One, two, three. I am secure. We're getting weaker. We're going to have to... Next one, I'm not going to go so fast. I'll slow down a little bit. But what I want you to see in this is that what God has done for you, He is maintaining for you. He's holding it together for you. Uh, if I could get a little personal here just for a second. I, I, I grew up in a, a, a great faith. I, I thank God all the time for what I was taught in my youth about Christ and about the Scriptures, about the Bible. But one of the things that I, as I grew older in my faith and, and began to mature and own my faith, one of the things I began to realize is that we taught a gospel of salvation by faith in our churches and then we lived, and this, this is a big word, but bear with me, I'll explain it. Then we lived a practice of sanctification, which is the process by which we're made righteous and we, our behavior improves and we become actually begin to act more like Jesus, sanctification. We believe in sanctification by works. And when God got a hold of him and he said, man, it's all by grace. It's all by faith. Your works are wrapped in Jesus' works. It's his works, not yours. So the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 38, Paul writes, this is amazing. Romans 8 is solid gold start to finish, by the way. If you just need a chapter to rock your world, Romans 8's it. Romans 8, 38, Paul writes, I am convinced. I am convinced. That sounds pretty, like he's, like he's convinced, doesn't it? I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor a- neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us 
from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Does that text sound ambiguous in any way? I mean, do you get to the bottom of that and go, well, I wonder if there is anything. It sounds like he covered it all. What does that mean to you? Well, it means that you're holding on to Jesus. He's holding on to you. It means that he, he came to seek and save the lost, to, to tie a few scriptural metaphors together. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He loved all 100 of the sheep, but when one of them wandered, he made sure to go get the one that was lost. This is how he works. You see, this is the problem that, that with, with the church. When you go away, we go get you. That's how it works. You run from Jesus, he runs after you. My wife and I have the same deal. I say, honey, you can leave me, but I'm going to follow you. <laughs> Wherever you go, I go. Man. So, my point is, you, you don't get out of this family. You're in the family. As David said, if I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go to the grave, you're there. Even in the dark, I can't hide from you. I believe that God saves and keeps his people. I guess one little caveat, one little caveat. <clears throat> I believe that's based on, on that defining moment and God's transformation in your life. I don't think it's wise to bank your eternity on a single prayer that yielded no fruit that happened at any point in your life. And so I do believe God holds you. I just want to encourage you to make sure, Paul said to examine yourself, to make sure you're in the faith. That was something he said, 1 Corinthians 13. And so, <clears throat> true faith yields transformation in one's life. So, anyway, I believe that you are secure. The, the next thing I'll say, I am free. So I'm going to ask you to say this with me. I'd like you all to be prepared. I know some of you are like, hey, it's almost lunchtime. And I'm like, I know, but we ate enough. We can go longer. Right. All right? So on the count of three, one, two, three, I am free. Man, doesn't the word freedom sound good? Once you get that picture of Mel Gibson in the paint out of your head. But I mean, <laughs> freedom! I am free. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. I, I think Jesus is crazy about freedom. I think he wants you to be free. I think the idea of freedom is not just a political idea. Or a societal idea. I think it is something that Jesus put in people that he intended for them to live in freedom and to be free to do what's right. And I think that's the caveat. I think freedom is about doing what's right, not what's expected. And so Jesus said he, called for free. he, he died for our freedom. The Bible says in Romans 6, 5, since we've been united with Jesus in his death, so Jesus died, that gets credited to me, will also be raised to life as he was. He rose from the dead. That also gets credited to me. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. And we are no longer slaves to sin, to failure, to mistakes, to all that stuff. We're no longer there. One, a great story in the New Testament is about Onesimus. 
The book of Philemon, which is one chapter long, it tells us, gives us a look into Onesimus' life. He was a slave who wanted to be free, so he tried to get freedom in the way that we always try and get freedom. He ran away from his responsibilities and his debts. He ran away. I'll be free on my own. And that never works. You can't be free in your own power. Someone's got to give it to you. So Onesimus ends up in jail, and it's likely that what happened was that one of his jail terms, he got stuck in a cell with this crazy man named Paul. That's likely what happened. Can you imagine what it'd be like? You have no faith. You don't know who Jesus is. You, 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 you grew up rough until you grew up a slave, and they stick you in a, the cell with the Apostle Paul. He's writing the New Testament right there in front of you. What would you do? Well, you do what he did. You become a believer and you start helping Paul out. And the reason we had the book of Philemon is because Paul writes a letter to Philemon and says, Hey, I got your slave. He's with me. And he knows what he did was wrong. And I'm sending him back to you to make that right. But what I'm asking you to do is to make him free so he can come back and work with me. That's a, that's a nutshell of the book of Philemon. I love that story because Philemon tried to get, I mean, Onesimus tried to be free and it ended up in prison. But then when Christ set him free, he was free to go back to his owner and actually become and receive real freedom. Most of us want to be free, but we just don't want to stop behaving in ways that are comfortable to us to do so. But as a believer, you're free. And you have to start believing that. I'm free. It's something we need to say to ourselves often. You belong to God, my dear children. You've already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. You have nothing left to earn. And lastly, the main thing to remember, we begin with I'm in Christ. That's foundational. Nothing works without that. But the last thing you have to remember is that I am unfinished. So let's say that together. Count of three. One, two, three. I am unfinished. Yeah. I can prove that because you're still here. When you're done, God pops the oven door open and takes you home. That's just a theory. Philippians puts it this way. I am certain... That God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. I know he'll continue his work. God's still working on you. You're his favorite. I mean, I'm his favorite. You're his favorite. I I I love Philippians. You're getting a whole Bible over you today. Sorry. I love the book of Philippians because, I don't know if you know this or not, but the Philippian church was started by a girl who was demon-possessed that Paul cut loose, ran the demon off, a Philippian jailer. I mean, you don't get rougher and more tumbler than that, you know, rough and tumble. Uh, and a businesswoman, a wealthy businesswoman. God took those three completely disconnected lives and started the, the Philippian church. And when you, when you read Paul's letter to the Philippians, it is like the most tender, compassionate, encouraging letter. And it's just filled with this reality that God isn't done with you. And he starts the first chapter of Philippians. God isn't finished with you. 
There's more coming. There's more going on. So we're all here together. I know you have your backstories. I usually love to hear people's backstories. I love to hear how God has brought you from whatever whatever pain and suffering and struggle and joys and celebrations and brought you into the day that we're in together. I love those stories. But this isn't over. You're here for this time in history. You are here for this time in history. All of you. Ordinary faith. Thinking about renaming it ornery faith. (laughs) Just kidding. It's just a joke. We're here for this time in history. God isn't finished with us. And what we have to learn to do is stop leaving the press around us and start living in the truth that God planted within us. Accepting these simple identity truths. Everyone else in the world can run around like Chicken Little, afraid that the sky is falling. I'm sorry, I'm wrapped in Jesus. I am in Christ Jesus. That sounds better than being wrapped in a tank to me. That sounds more secure. And my father has got his, his, he is holding me secure in this life. I'm free. It doesn't matter. I don't need a constitution to set me free. I've been released in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you understand this stuff, and this isn't political or intended to be political in nature. This is about giving the children of God a mooring and understanding that what God says about you is more true than the reality in which you live. It's more true. And the more you begin to to see that, step in that, rehearse that, ask God to reveal that to you, the more you're going to be able to actually live in a chaotic world and you be at perfect peace. We'll talk about that more through our next series and coming up through Christmas, how to live above this fear. I just want you to know for today, these are some simple identity truths that are for you. They're your I am's. Jesus is famous for saying I am and then saying something that connects him with God the Father. Well, you have some I am's that Jesus gave you. And so this is where we begin to process these thoughts. We start with I'm in Christ. We work our way through these ideas and we begin to realize that there's so much more to us than meets the eye. Worship team, if I could get you to come forward. We're going to offer prayer today. If you need prayer, we're going to be over here on my right today. We're trying a few different things just to keep everybody guessing. My point is this. If you're struggling with who you are or your past or what you've done, then we'd love a chance to pray with you and ask God to reveal some things to you, to show you what he's done for you. If if you have anything going on in your life that you need prayer for, a physical condition, anything at all, a relationship, we, we get prayer. Michael, it's just prayer. Prayer is boring. No, prayer is powerful. And also, you and I have been invited through prayer, by prayer, or in prayer, into the throne room of God. So if you actually need stuff done in this world, the place to get that done is from the throne room that runs this world. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for this chance to go through some identity truths Thank you for the grace I've been given. I have gone a little long. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to see these truths and live in them and to rejoice in them. And I pray, God, that you would reveal them to us. You would give us revelation.
of what we have been given in Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. Let's stand.